Uh, I hope you're still in the Gospel of John, as Pastor Nathan just read from. We're going to be uh, just touching on a few things here. Uh, the Gospel of John, especially this opening chapter, is one of the most rich, I would say, chapters in all the Bible. And I know I can say that about a lot of different chapters, but this one uh, has a lot to tell us, a lot to say to us. Um, I love how John begins this gospel, and I was struck by some thoughts over the last several weeks, and so I figured I would put them together, so to speak, and try to just hit some highlights here in this opening uh, chapter, especially the first 18 or so verses. Uh, This won't be an exhaustive exposition by any stretch, but I was just really struck by one particular phrase in verse 18, which we'll get to in a moment. But John here, as he begins this gospel, does so in a very particular way. It's unlike the other gospels. Uh, you go to you go to Luke, and he begins with the uh, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. We go to Mark, and he gets right to the point with the idea of John the Baptist being on the scene. No real introduction. He just gets right into the action. If you go to the book of Matthew, of course, he begins with that genealogy, which proves that Jesus is the son of David. Here, John does something quite different. He begins with a prologue of sorts that is almost reminiscent in a way, I think very purposefully, of Genesis chapter 1. If you go there, if you go to Genesis 1, of course, you know the first several words in the beginning, God. And I think John very, very pointedly is almost echoing that same sort of sentiment when he says here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is a truth in which he is a, he's establishing right from the get-go here in this opening sort of salvo that the incarnation of Christ is the incarnation of God. He's affirming the deity of Christ right from the outset. And again, this is the point that John has been, is going to make throughout his gospel. It's one of the reasons why the gospel of John contains other, other miracles that aren't in other gospels, but also the most miracles uh, than all the other gospels. He is trying to prove a point. Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not a philanthropist. He's not a humanitarian. He is God in the flesh. And there's a lot of meaning in those words, of course, and uh, I think within that, he was this Christ, the the Son of God, is the Word of God, who was there when, as we could say, the worlds were formed. He was the Word, as it says here, by which everything was made. He gave birth, we could say, through this word to stars and solar systems and galaxies. You can sense this rich, amazing theology, to use that word, this, this spiritual truth that is just oozing out of John as he's penning this opening chapter. And then he does something quite different when we jump down to verse 14. Because he's sort of been... Dealing with things that would be recognizable to people in his day and age. Um, people that he would be, that would be familiar with some of the things he's talking about. How this God and, and he's in heaven and, and there's this great uh, light that comes from this other world, so to speak. But then he does something amazing in verse 14, which he gets to and, say, and he says, And the word was made flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is sort of a turning of the tables for John's readers in a lot of ways in which he takes this idea that this word that was with God, this word that was God, the word that was in the beginning with God, actually came to earth and took on flesh. And for John's readers, this was an entirely otherworldly concept. Something completely foreign. We could say to use modern vernacular, this was mind-blowing. This idea that something, some personal God would come down to his creatures, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) A lot of the notions of gods and deities, especially if you look at Greek and Roman mythology, what do they all have in common? There's this separation between the two classes. The gods don't have interactions. When they have interactions with their creatures, it's interactions that bring the gods down, that, that, that don't do anything for the people. It's almost this otherworldly sort of degradation of the gods. But the idea that this god would take of his own accord, would decide of his own choosing and will to manifest in his creation as one of his creatures, <laughs> this is something else. Again, as he says, the word, the same word from verse number one, this eternal word of God, he became a creature. As it says, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. This is the unheard of news that comes with the gospel, that comes with the news of Jesus Christ. And I think what he's doing from the outset, he's answering a very particular question. He's answering the question, who is Jesus? Again, you can kind of see that. If you go at the Gospel of John from that sort of standpoint, he's answering that question. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Word of God who is eternal, immutable, unchangeable, completely perfect. And you can see how he's answering that right from the very beginning. He's leaving the reader with no doubt on who this Jesus guy that he's going to go on for 21 chapters talking about. He is the Son of the Father, the, the Word of God himself. And I think, though, there's another question that I was pondering that I think John answers here in this first chapter especially, but all throughout the Gospels, of course. And it's a question that I think Jesus' life and ministry resolves, but it's this question, what is God like? What is, what is God like? If you, were, if you were forced to answer that question, what would you say? What is, what is God like? It, it, it kind of reminds me of the old question that A.W. Tozer sort of posed in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I would echo that. When you think of God, the God of the Bible, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Do you think of his, his retribution? Do you think of his compassion? Do you think of his righteousness? Do you think of his holiness? Do you think of his justice? Do you think of his, the way in which he works through his people, his chosen people, Israel, all throughout those ages of history? Do you think of the way he spoke through the prophets? What do you think of? It's a question that I think we are right to ponder because I would say how you answer that question, what is God like, I think will be very indicative of what you take away from the Christian life as a whole. And there's a lot of caricatures about God that are out there. 
you know, we some people think he's this grumpy geezer with a long white beard and he's always trying to tell people to get off his lawn, right? <laughs> That's, that's the pop culture caricature of God. You know, you see him in cartoons or on TV. He's always this old man who's grumpy and he doesn't want to do anything. He wants to just have people leave him alone. <laughs> do you think he's this overlord who's overbearing and watching every move, waiting for you to mess up so he can strike you down? Or do you think he's this tyrant? Or do you think he's this just disinterested dad? This idea that he's, he's the father of heaven, but he's really disengaged. He doesn't really have a lot to do with us and with our world. He's kind of just hands off. Those are some of the ways I think that God has been distorted, been caricatured by our society, by our world. But this goes back again to that same fundamental question. What is God like? If you think one of those other ways, it'll, it'll veer you off into a different pattern. A different pattern of faith, a different pattern of life, in which you, you feel as though the pressure of your spirituality is all on your shoulders. That idea that God is this overbearing overlord can weigh you down to where you become this almost hunchback Christian because you think all of the pressure of your spiritual life is up to you. You can see how that changes the way you live this spiritual life. And I think it's no wonder then that there's scores of people who come to church who are struggling, who are just falling and tripping over themselves, so to speak, to live fruitful Christian lives, fulfilling spiritual lives of faith when this idea of who God is and what he is like has been so misconstrued. Because again, I think the answer to that question, what God is like, is right here. Jesus answers that. Go with me to John chapter 12. There's this striking thing that Jesus says here in John chapter 12 that he repeats a couple times through this book. Look at John chapter 12, verse 45. He's in this conversation. Uh, one of his last public discourses with his apostles. Actually, look at verse 44. Jesus says, Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Did you catch what Jesus said there in verse 45? He that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. When you're seeing Jesus, you're seeing a glimpse at who God is. Jump over to chapter 14. Look again, he makes the same assertion here. Look at verse number 9. It says, Jesus saith unto him, to Philip, Have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how saith thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The word that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but of the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me, that I I'm in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works sake. He here is again asserting this idea that Jesus is no, uh, so to speak, other. He is revealing the Father. He's showing us who God is and what he is like. These are Jesus' own words. <laughs> he has come to show us 
Yes, through his words and through his most glaring actions, we could say, more than just telling us. He's come to show us what God is like. If you want to summarize those verses we just ventured to, it's basically Jesus saying to his followers or saying to people he's exchanging words with, you want to know what God is like? Just, I'm right here. I'm here with you. Look at me. And again, that's... Essentially, the point of John's gospel. Uh, go with me to John chapter 20. This is what has often been referred to as John's thesis. The whole reason why he's writing is to prove this very fact. Notice John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, But these are written, all of these accounts, all of these stories, all of these very true, uh, elaborate scenes that he has just gone through. These are written, he says, that ye might believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing ye might have life through his name. This is his whole argument. His whole argument from the very beginning, as we've seen here, just in the opening couple of verses, is to show you that Jesus is the revelation of who God is and what he is like. That's why he's here, bringing glory to this idea that, as Paul says, the glory that we can see in the face of Christ himself. He's here to say, John is here to demonstrate this idea again that This teacher of Nazareth that was tried and crucified for this blasphemy that he was accused of being an insurrectionist. He's not just a good teacher or a moral man or this peacemaking guy. He was divine. He was God in the flesh. And here, from the very, if you go back to John chapter 1, from the very beginning, John is giving us a hint at that. That, at, at that idea that, that he is the revelation, the very, the very way in which we understand most truly and most deeply who God is, we see it in Christ, the Son of God himself. Notice verse number 18. John chapter 1, verse number 18. Well, I'll jump back up to verse 15. John, he's talking about John the Baptist, bear witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we all received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Really interesting way that John here phrases that, is it not? This idea that the Son of God hath declared the Father of God. That's essentially what he's there saying in verse 18. That the Son of God is the declaration of God the Father. And I think there's a lot more to that word declared than just meets the eye. We would think of declaring as just this idea of the spoken word, speaking things with our mouths. But that word declared means a whole lot more than just that Actually, in the Greek, I love this because it says uh, in the Greek, this word declared actually means to, to unfold or, or to rehearse or to consider out loud. And in fact, it's the same word that we get our word exegesis from. Exegesis is the, you know, a big word that we can say that when we go to a passage of scripture, we're exegeting, we're explaining what the word says. So we can say here, 
in a way, that the Son of God is, we could say, the exegesis of God himself. And that's what John is saying. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath explained who he is and what he's like. He has declared him. He has exegeted the Father for us. That's what that word declared means. He unfolds, reveals what that heavenly Father is like and who he is most truly, most deeply. That's what he bears witness to. In a way that no one else really can. In a way that no one else really can to show forth. That's what Jesus has come to do. Come to show us who God is and what he's like. So if someone comes up to you and asks you that question, what is God like? Open the Bible and show them Jesus. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why John is one of the first books we want to give to people when they're asking questions about religion or about the faith. Because it's John's premise is to explain to you what, what this God is like. We look to Jesus and we see him. We look to him and see his compassion for the lost and the lonely and the hurting and those who have no shepherd, though, those who have no father. They, we, we look to Jesus and we see this just unbridled compassion and mercy for people who need it. And I would say even truer than all that is, he comes to show us that this has been the God all along. I came across this amazing passage from a sermon by G. Campbell Morgan. And if you'll excuse me, I'd like to read it because it goes right along with what I think John is here saying. Because I think there's a reason why he begins in a way that echoes Genesis 1. We have this, well, let me read it and then I'll, I'll, I'll try and unpack it. So G. Campbell Morgan, he says this in one of his sermons, quote, this gospel of the grace of God, which is the gospel of the Son of God, is the declaration of the attitude of God towards men. It is in this regard that Christ is the revealer. Christ did not come into this world of ours in order to create a new attitude on the part of God toward man. He did not come to change the mind of God. He did not come to persuade God to be gracious. He did not come to propitiate God and turn him back again to the sons of men. He did not come to reconcile God to man. It is a fundamentally false conception of the mission of our Lord and of the terms of the gospel to declare that Jesus Christ came into human history to change the mind of God. No, he came to reveal to man the mind of God. To reveal the abiding attitude of God toward men. In him God was unveiled, not changed. Through him God spoke no new message, but the perpetual message of his heart. The gospel of the grace of God is, first of all, a declaration on the part of our Lord of the attitude of God toward men. Which is, to me, a, 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 an amazing way to look at this mission of Jesus. And I love this idea. <laughs> This idea that we can look at the ministry of Jesus and the declarations that he made and all of the things that he came to do and be for us, the sinners who could no longer get ourselves out of the ditch. He comes to show us the heart of God that's been there from all along. And I think that's really important because I've been doing some reading and research and watching of these, I'll just, very to the left theologians, And they've tried to drive this wedge in between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. As if there's a difference. 
And at first, if you're just reading the scriptures, you can kind of come away and see that sometimes. Why is God telling his people to go out and just slaughter these enemies of his word and his truth? And, 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 and people point to that all the time to make it seem as if, you know, again, the God of the Old Testament is this grumpy geezer who wants to have everyone get their due. And the Jesus of the New Testament is this kind and merciful and soft Savior. And they try to drive a wedge between the Testaments. They try to split up your Bible into two different books that aren't compatible, that don't have any connecting points. As if you could say that Jesus is the good cop to God's bad cop. It's like in, you know, those, those old cop shows where there's a good cop, bad cop routine, and the one comes in, and you, you got to tell me what you did wrong. And then the good cop comes in, and he's like, here, have a donut. And he tries to get the guy to talk. And, you know, he's kind, and he's considerate and understanding. You can kind of see that with the way we have caricatured the gods of the Bible. The God, the Father in the Old Testament, he's the bad cop. And Jesus comes along as the good cop, giving everyone a sprinkled donut. (laughs) And that's actually not true. That's a a false dichotomy. It's a a false way in which we have divided these two uh, persons of the Trinity. Because the Old Testament God is no more unforgiving than Jesus. Actually, both reveal themselves as incredibly forgiving in fact go with me to exodus if you don't believe me hopefully you do but go with me to exodus chapter 34 because you ever heard what has been at the heart of god from the very beginning listen to what he says here look at exodus chapter 34 verse number six when he's giving the covenant again this is By the way, the second time he's giving it to his people because they already failed the first time when he's just given it to them. (laughs) And notice this is after Moses has sort of interceded on behalf of his people and he's yearned for a glimpse of the glory of God to pass by him and he sees that glory and that glory of God that is in the cleft of the rock gives him this amazing testament to what is at the heart of God behind this covenant with these people who've already just messed up. Exodus 34, look at verse 6, and it says, And the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, passed by before him and proclaimed, what? The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting upon the, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation. You see what that is? is what's at his heart? <laughs> This gracious, merciful, long-suffering God who is full of goodness and truth. That's what it's been from the very beginning. This is who I am. And as, as you are, are my people, I have promised and covenanted to be that God for you. Which is just to say these ideas of driving a wedge between Old Testament God and New Testament Jesus are just baloney. They, they don't have any bearing. They don't have any weight. Because there's never been, there's never going to be any sort of discrepancy between God the Father and God the Son. 
And I think that's what John is doing. That's why he begins in the same way as Genesis 1, that in the beginning God, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the revelation of the Father, the declaration of who God is in skin and bone, flesh and blood. That's what he has come to do. He's the Redeemer and the Revealer. He didn't come to change God's mind, he came to reveal the mind of God in action, in word, in deed. That's what Jesus has done. He didn't come to sort of add more grace to the scale because of all of God the Father's grouchiness and orneriness. He came to show us who God has been from the very beginning. To reveal what he has been up to from before the foundation of the world. I think that's what John is hinting at here. He's suggesting that this is who he is. He makes plain the Father. That's what Jesus does. He puts a face to all that God has made known about himself through all the prophets. Go with me really quick to another passage really quick. First Peter 1 Peter chapter 1, we covered this several months ago, but I love what Peter says here in the opening chapter because he makes almost the same points that John does. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse number 10, as it says, Peter's writing here to these Gentile churches, of which salvation, talking about the salvation, the deliverance of their souls, he says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace of That should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. When it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you. By them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Which things the angels desire to look into. Those things that the prophets inquired and searched and prophesied about, they came to light in Jesus, who, as Peter here has suggested, he is, Jesus himself is, the grace that should come unto us. He's the grace of the Father, as we we referenced back in Exodus. He's the grace of the Father come in flesh and blood. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 1. This Great and an expansive text says the same basic thing here too. Notice Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by prophets. He's establishing the way in which it was in the Old Testament. He spake through men of God. Elisha and Elijah. He spoke through those prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on and so forth. He spake through them. And then notice verse 2. Half in these last days, in his recent and current days, spoken unto us by his Son. Whom he hath appointed the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Notice how that connects us to John 1. Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all um, things by the word of his power, when he had made, or when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's who Jesus is. (laughs) 
He's the brightness of the glory of God in a person. (laughs) The express image of who God is in flesh and blood. That's who Jesus is. He didn't just come to tell us through another prophet. He came to show us by coming down to earth himself. And this is one of the reasons why the faith that we have, the faith in Jesus Christ, the faith in this inspired, delivered word is unlike any other faith and religion in the world because it shows us that our God is not somewhere off in the heavenlies giving us words to come to him. Giving us words by which we have to strive and claw and scratch our way to perfect ourselves before he receives us. It tells us the otherworldly news that this God who spoke everything into existence came to us himself to reveal his glory in the most glorious way that is so unthinkable by taking on our griefs and sorrows and sins and dying for them. What type of God does that? What type of God would do that? No other God but the God of the Bible. No other Savior but Jesus. He shows us the heart of who God is. And what does that look like? It looks like a God who's, as it says in Philippians, who is willing to empty himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It shows us that this cross that Christ went to was no blight, was no mark on the glory of God that diminished it. It actually revealed it. That's the amazing thing. When Christ ascends to the cross and is nailed there as we will reminisce on on Friday, Good Friday as we call it. It's the ultimate revelation of who God is. We understand it because of the empty tomb that now the God who spoke everything into existence is not afraid to have nails pierce his hands. What does that tell us about God? He's a God who reveals himself in a cross, in suffering, in shame. He reveals himself through those things that we would rather avoid. And yet he tells us that all of that is defeated in him. And what appeared to be devastating was actually his coronation, we could say. When they, those, those crucifiers, those executioners, they put that, that inscription above Jesus' head, Hail, King of the Jews. They were doing so out of spite. They were doing so sarcastically. <laughs> Look at this king. And they didn't know how true they were. Because he was the king. And he was the king who came to die for his very people to establish the kingdom in himself. These are the things to hearken all the way back to John that we've been kind of just reminiscing on. This is what Jesus declares to us. You want to know what God is, what God is like and who he is? Look at Jesus. Look at the ways in which he deals with sinners. Look at the way in which he shows us the truth of God as he speaks to people, heals them of their blindness, heals them of their infirmities, and speaks words of grace and truth to them as only he could. I love, I think it's, I think it's St. Augustine. I'm going to get this all 
the citation is probably wrong, but it's one of those early church fathers, I think it's Augustine, who talks about the idea that the cross was the devil's mousetrap. Have you ever heard that idea? I, I love that reference. Because for the devil, he thinks he's got Jesus beat. He thinks he's won. But in fact, three days later, what happens? The, the trap springs on the devil himself because Jesus has actually trampled all of sin and death and hell forever. That's the revelation of who God is. He comes and does that for us. The Father is made known to us in the Son. He that has seen me has seen the Father. This Son of God declares the Father to us. Declares this ministry as John says there in John 1 verse 16. This ministry of grace upon grace. I'm so thankful that we have this amazing articulated revelation of who God is that has been inspired by his very spirit that we don't have to we don't have to doubt we don't have to fear as we can reference again in Hebrews chapter 4 we can enter into the throne of grace how boldly because of who this high priest is and was and still is to this day i'm thankful for the revelation of God that we have in Jesus Christ. May he be praised. Let's pray.